gives it away when he says her, right? <laughs> when she preaches. So good morning and happy new year. If you guys got, happy new year. You guys get that text from Winnie? It's like the 3,000th, I don't know, however number to wish you a happy new year. Uh, it's good to see everyone again. I was going to start off just asking if anyone made any New Year's resolutions. But then I thought, yo, is that outdated? <laughs> is that corny now? Does anyone make, new, does anyone actually make a New Year's resolution? Oh, yeah? One person. <laughs> so I was thinking, I was thinking, like, maybe we just don't call it that anymore. You know, we just, there's stuff that we want that's different for 2023, but we're not going to call it, like, a resolution. So, like, I was talking the other day with some mom friends of mine, and we all have, like, little kids, and we're all like, yeah, yo, this year, we're going to take care of ourselves. <laughs> we're going to lose that weight. We're going to get healthy. We're coming back. This is our glow up year. And I thought, like, afterwards, I was like, dang, we're really confident about that. <laughs> like, we had a lot of faith this year was going to be the year that we were going to do more self-care. You know, I was thinking, like, we had so much faith that was going to happen. There's, like, this new idea that maybe you guys have heard about, this idea of, like, manifesting. You know, you can manifest those things that you want in the future. Like, you want that husband, you want that wife, you're going to manifest that. You want that promotion, you're going to manifest it. I guess, like, in the Christian world, it's like the name it and claim it movement, right? Like, it's positive thinking. Like, if we think hard enough, somehow the universe is going to make it happen. It's just they're going to bless it. I thought, well, that's, that's a lot of crazy faith, right? It's a lot. Of, so today, we're going to return. We're going back into Luke's gospel. We took a break uh, for the holidays, but we're going back into Luke's gospel. And we're going to see an example of some crazy faith. So just as a recap, the weeks before Christmas, let's get ourselves back into the mindset of the book of Luke. Before Christmas, we were going through Jesus' teachings, which... Uh, Scholars would call that his Sermon on the Plain. So he was encouraging his disciples with the Beatitudes. He was teaching his followers how to love their enemies. You guys remember that? How to love our enemies, to be careful about judging, building our foundation on a rock. So he's finished that, and now we're back to the narrative portion. So Jesus is going to continue his ministry, and he's going to enter a, a new village of Capernaum. So why don't you guys pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you've given us another year to bring you glory, to witness to you, to receive from you. Lord, we thank you that we are here and we are gathered. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear you today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's grab our service sheets. If you need one, we have ushers that will help you out. Everyone at home, grab your Bibles. We're turning to Luke chapter 7. Verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Luke 7, 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, 
and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amen. So let's start off with some context. So a centurion is not a word we use every day. Centurion is a commander in the Roman army who has authority over about like 100 soldiers. I looked this up. I think in the army it's a captain. But he has authority over 100 soldiers, and they generally had a decent amount of money. Uh, they, were, they had a lot of means, and they would use this to like fund civic projects or whatever's happening in the community to build goodwill. They came from all different ethnic backgrounds, uh, but we know from Jesus' words that this centurion in particular is not a Jew. He's not from the nation of Israel, so he's what we would call a Gentile, like all of us. Now, this record of Jesus' encounter with the centurion is actually recorded in two places. So you guys know there's four Gospels, right? There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all record Jesus' ministry. Matthew and Luke are very similar, but in this case, Matthew and Luke record different things. In Luke, uh, the scripture says that the centurion, in this story, he never meets Jesus face to face. All his communication with Jesus is through delegates. So first he sends the Jewish elders, and then he sends the friends to deliver another message. In Matthew, Matthew records the centurion as going directly to Jesus himself. Now we don't know why there's differences, but there's some theories on it. So we think Matthew, in his gospel, he tends to abbreviate his stories. So you know there's like, Friends of yours, you got two friends telling you a story, and there's one guy, he just gets straight to the point. There's another friend named Luke, and he likes to add detail. He likes to add detail, and, and that's the friend you're like, all right, wrap it up, wrap it up. Let's hear, let's hear what's really going on. So God uses people to deliver his word to us, so we get these different facets about what happened back then. But for this story, whether it was through messengers, whether the centurion sent people or the centurion went by himself, the dialogue and the gist of the story is the same. There's this well-respected Gentile, non-Jew military officer who's desperate for help. He's desperate for help, and he seeks help from this Jewish rabbi that he heard was doing miracles, that he heard had the power to heal people. Now this is important because it means that Jesus's fame had extended beyond just the Jews. You have to remember, like the Jews here, they're a minority. They're a minority in the Roman Empire. Think about the, the Orthodox Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn. You know who I'm talking about? The ones with the hats, the curly hair. We don't overlap with them that much. 
Just like the Jews back then, they follow their own laws. They eat kosher, so we're not going to see them getting a bacon, egg, and cheese at the corner store. We'll see them in Target, but we won't see them in our schools because they're studying in their own schools. Now, the Jews back then were similar. They had their monotheistic places of worship. They're not going to the temple of Artemis. They don't know about Zeus. They're doing their own thing. So now, imagine, like, one of us, we need help. One of our loved ones is sick. And we hear there's this Jewish teacher in Borough Park that's been healing people. And we need his help. That's what we're talking about right now. This centurion, outside of this culture, outside of the Jews, outside of Israel, needs help from Jesus. So far, as far as we've seen in Luke, all the people that Jesus has been healing has been, for the most part, I think all of it, has been Jewish. They're in or around the synagogues. They're Simon's mother-in-law. Like, everyone is pretty much under the same understanding. But this is the first time in Luke's gospel that we see a clear interaction between Jesus and someone who's not of God's people. So let's get into it. In Luke's account, the centurion sends Jewish elders first to Jesus to plead for his help. This, his servant is dying. There's a word in verse 7, a Greek word that means like son. So the servant, some people say slave. There's, a, there's an affectionate relationship there. In Matthew's account, it says that the servant was suffering and paralyzed. So this is, this is a bad situation. This, this centurion is desperate. And the scripture said that Jesus was willing to go. He was willing to go. But before he gets there, the centurion sends more people. He sends his friends to say, no, don't go. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. That was a little confusing, right? Wait, didn't the centurion send the elders in the first place? He sent the elders to get Jesus to come, right? Why is he sending friends now to say, don't come? And that's hard to know also. As far as we know, maybe he didn't expect Jesus to come. Jesus starts coming, and the centurion's like, oh, my gosh. He's actually going to come to my house. He's coming to sunset. <laughs> he took the bus. He's taking the bus over. Um, and, and then he, he says, like, don't. don't. You might be walking. He, he's like, don't come. Don't come. It's not necessary. It's not necessary. And this was astonishing to Jesus. This Jesus was stupefied. Jesus was shook. Like the text says that Jesus marveled at him. He's amazed at this guy for the first time. Someone's telling him, don't come to my house. Don't come to my house. Every time that the word marvel is used in the Gospels, almost all the time, it's about people marveling at Jesus. They're amazed that, wow, Jesus is doing these miracles. Jesus is saying these things. And now... We're reading a record of Jesus marveling at this non-Jew, at this Gentile, because of his great faith, because of his great faith in Jesus. This Gentile who has no knowledge of the law, he has no idea who Moses is, no idea who Abraham is, but this Gentile knows who Jesus is. And this Gentile knows Jesus so well that he says that, Jesus, you can heal my servant just by saying the word. Just by saying the word. Do you remember a few passages back in Luke when uh, we read about those four friends who took their friend to Jesus? 
and they like went up on the roof. They broke up. They destroyed property and they broke a hole just to lower. Like that was crazy, right? That was crazy. And now there's this Gentile who's like, nah, that's not even necessary. <laughs> you don't need to break through a home. You don't need to even get to Jesus. Jesus has the power to do it even from a distance. So Jesus, no wonder, says to the crowd who apparently was there, they're not mentioned in the beginning, but they're witnessing all this. There's a whole bunch of followers of Jesus witnessing all this. Jesus turns to them and says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even, that's like a stab to the heart. That's like your mama looking at you and saying like, yeah, I, I never seen my kids work as hard as you guys. <laughs> like that's, that's how it feels. That's how it feels. Jesus is saying that this Gentile's faith is greater than everyone in Israel. So the first point of today's message is this. Great faith doesn't require great knowledge. <laughs> great faith doesn't require one to know all the scriptures, to be reading commentaries for fun. It doesn't mean you have to have a seminary degree to have great faith or to be born in a family of faith. In this account, one could have great faith and not even be in the church. Now this is important because a lot of us, whether we grew up in the church or maybe we became Christian later on, somehow we got this message that great faith, mature faith, must be those people who know the Bible, must be those people who can quote scriptures from their minds, must be those people who just know a lot, pray really well, just speak really well. All those leaders in ministry, that's great faith. Those are the people who please God. And then we feel like an outsider. We feel like we don't measure up, we get intimidated because we don't know that much. How can we please God? And that kind of thinking is really bad theology. <laughs> it's really bad theology. The fact that we think that faith is maturity is mixed in with the things that we do and the things that we know, that kind of belief comes from the world. That kind of belief comes from the world that's measuring us and preaching a salvation of works. But this centurion, he's outside of Israel. He's not part of the in-group. He doesn't know the law. I bet you this centurion would have trouble getting through Leviticus also. So we don't need to stress about that. Jesus exalts him, exalts him in front of all these Jews to say that he had more faith than them. Great faith does not require us to know all about Christianity. You can have great faith and not even have a college degree. You don't even need an elementary school degree. You don't need any degree. And you can have great faith if you know who Jesus is. I remember the first time I went to church, I was a little kid back then. That was just like um, my parents took me like just for like a little bit. And I remember they told us to close our eyes and bow our heads because someone was going to pray. And I remember sitting there with my eyes closed like, what are we supposed to be doing? <laughs> Am I supposed to be praying my own prayer while that guy prays? Is, is that what everyone else is doing? Am I supposed to be repeating what he's saying? So like we're all giving a chorus in prayer? Like I genuinely did not know. 
And even at the point when I became a Christian, I don't think I fully understood the gospel. And yet, when I said that I wanted to follow God, I meant it, and God accepted that. God accepted that. For the centurion, his lack of knowledge actually made his faith more pure. What do I mean by that? So look at his reasoning for why Jesus doesn't need to come to his house. One, because he's not worthy, but also because... He just has to say the word and his servant will be healed. How does he get this logic? Is he quoting Isaiah? Is he quoting uh, some prophet in the Jewish law? He's not. He's just speaking from the world he knows. What does he know? The world of military. (laughs) What does he know? He just knows that he's a commander. And when he makes a command, people follow. When he says go, the soldiers go. When he says come, the soldiers come. So he thinks from his own knowledge that this must be how Jesus works. Jesus has authority over illness. Jesus has authority over sickness. He doesn't need to be there. He can just speak it. He can just speak it. His great faith was so simple to him. He just knew Jesus based on what he knew, and he, his great faith didn't need knowledge. So the second thing we see about faith here is that great faith is paired often with great humility. Great faith is often very humble. The centurion told Jesus that he sent the Jewish elders uh, to approach him because he didn't feel like he was worthy to do it, according to Luke. He didn't feel worthy to approach Jesus himself, and he didn't believe that he was worthy enough for Jesus to come to his house. He didn't know that much about Jesus, but he knew himself. He understood his own sins. He understood the ways that he failed. He knew that he was not worthy of this great Jewish teacher to come. He knew that the Jews coming into a Gentile's home would be considered unclean. And he didn't want to defile him. So he calls up the elders to ask for help. See, great faith for the centurion was humble. So let's contrast that. So here, the centurion saying, I'm not worthy. That's why I sent these guys to you. I'm not worthy. Don't come to my house. And then the Jewish elders, these religious elders, while they plead for Jesus' help, the first thing they say is, he's worthy. (laughs) He's worthy. He loves our nation. He built us our synagogue. The way that they plead with Jesus is all about, look at the good things he's done. He deserves this. You should help him. Look. It's the exact opposite of what the centurion says about himself. You know, oftentimes we can kind of think this way as the elders, this kind of like false humility. You know, we we will suffer for doing good deeds and then think, oh, we're worthy of God's blessings. You know, God, I've been giving up every Sunday to go to church God, I haven't been sinning. I haven't been hanging out with those people. God, do this for me. Look, I've been good. See, we forget our understanding. We forget our understanding of our position before God. That by his grace, by his mercy, have we received salvation. That it was from his goodness and his love, his grace on us, that we're able to have a relationship with him. We're recipients of a generous God. But a lot of times we think our little works, our little good works will make us worthy. You know, it's hard for us deep down to understand this concept of grace. 
Because in this world, everything's like this for that, right? Nothing is free in life, right? So to understand that we've received because of nothing that we've done. I remember I heard a testimony once of this young girl. She was getting baptized, so she was sharing how she came to Christ. And she said, you know, when people told me that Jesus loves me, I thought, of course, because I'm so lovable. <laughs> and, and it's funny, but, but we think that way sometimes. We think that way. So in this case, the Jewish leaders thought that way. They are trying to convince Jesus, look at how good this guy is. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who came down for us. And these elders are trying to convince him, look, he built a synagogue. He built us a synagogue. And Jesus goes, but it's really the centurion's humility that impresses him. Not the fact that he built a synagogue. Not the fact that he's using his money for good works for the Jews. It's the fact that he was humble. Great faith is often paired with great humility. It's being able to recognize our relationship before God. Now, the third thing we learn about great faith in this uh, story is that great faith is visible. Great faith can be seen in action. So in this case, the commander's faith was seen in two ways. The first way is, well, he's seeking out this, this teacher uh, for help. So he believes that Jesus can heal. And the second way that we see it is that he tells Jesus not to come. He stops Jesus from coming. And that's, that's crazy. That's crazy. Because if the centurion did nothing, Jesus was on his way. If the centurion did nothing, Jesus would come and would have healed his servant, and that would have been the end. That would have been the end. But we see it. You know how, like, there's some people who, they live their lives the way that they want, and then they'll say, oh, but I've always believed in God. I've always believed in God. And it's like... I'm, I'm not doubting you, but I, I don't really see it anywhere. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't really see your faith. Faith is visible. So some examples, faith is seen in really small ways, these ways you might not expect. Faith is seen when we pray. Faith is seen when we pray and when we rest and when we don't worry because we know God is in control. Faith is when we sacrifice what's in our bank accounts for his glory because we believe so strongly that God owns the cows in the field and he will not let us dry up. That's faith. Faith is doing things that the rest of the world would call you crazy to do. See, it makes no sense for the centurion to stop Jesus. Can you imagine the people in his household when they heard? Can you imagine? Like, what? You told Jesus not to come? You told him not to come. He's on his way. You told him not to come. Sir, your servant is on his deathbed. And you know this. And you know this. How could you tell him not to come? And then imagine their shock when he gets healed. When he gets healed. See, faith is visible and faith will make people think that you're crazy. Great faith is seen. So if great faith does not require knowledge, you don't have to be a, a PhD in theology in order to have great faith. It doesn't matter if you feel like you don't fit well in church and you can't pray as well as the person next to you and you don't feel like raising your hands. 
if great faith is accompanied with great humility and an understanding of our position before God, and if great faith is visible, if it's demonstrated, if it's seen in action, then we might be thinking at this point, well, how do we measure up? How do we measure up? How do we measure up? Are we like uh, the people I mentioned who are insecure about our faith because we've overcomplicated what it means to please God? Are we like the people who are the, are we like the elders who think like it's good works that will move God? It's good works that makes God love us and respond to us. Maybe we're like the people who say we believe in God, but there's no visible evidence of our faith. Maybe we don't do anything that people would say we're crazy. We look just like everyone else. You know, I think honestly, and I'm going to be real with you, I think we overthink it. I think we overthink it. Great faith is quite simple. The centurion had great faith because he just believed in Jesus. That's it. That's it. He believed Jesus was who he said he was, which we don't know at this point, but likely a great healer. He wasn't seeking to learn the history of Israel or to learn Hebrew. He just knew Jesus. And the, one of the pitfalls, I think, of us as a church is that we separate ourselves into, like, different groups, into, like, those who are leaders and those who are not. And we see this weird hierarchy in church. You know, we get this from the world. Like, somehow the person on the pulpit is higher than the person in the seats. And somehow the Bible study leader is better than the person who's setting up chairs. Like, that's not true. That is not true, church. That is not true. We confuse faith with faithfulness. Those are two different things. So faith is believing in Jesus. Faithfulness is walking, devoted to him, following his call. We're not saved by faithfulness. We're not saved by this. We're saved by faith. And faith is very simple. It means we believe in Jesus, what he says, and we rest in that that's done. That's done. There's no measuring for the Christian. You know, sometimes I hear people say, oh, I've been a bad Christian. Or maybe they'll fall into sin and they'll think, oh, I'm not Christian anymore. I used to think that. If we didn't go to church, how could we call ourselves Christian? But the scriptures don't describe us that way. The scriptures don't say that. The scriptures say that we are a new creation. That the old has passed away and all this is from us. No, all this is from God. God has made us new. We have not made ourselves new. Do you understand that? We have not made ourselves new. It doesn't matter how much we study the Bible. It doesn't matter how much we set up chairs, how much we preach. We have not made ourselves new by doing those things. It is God who has made us new. The scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth and that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You will be saved. If you're feeling insecure about your faith because you, you read about the centurion and Jesus' praise and you're like, Tiff, yo, I hear you, but I'm getting nervous now. I don't know if I believe. I don't know if I have as much faith as what you're describing right here. So I want to share, share one last story with you in the book of Mark. Uh, it's not in Luke, but in the book of Mark, there's a record of this man, and his son has been oppressed by a demon for a really long time. And he brings his son to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, please, if you can, please help us. 
And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe. And the man says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Do you hear what this man is saying? I don't even think this man knows what he's saying. He's saying he believes. But if there's like an iota, if there's a dot of him that doesn't believe, he still goes to Jesus. He still goes to Jesus to help him with that. He's demonstrating his faith when he says he might not have enough faith. Church, if we're feeling nervous about where we stand before God, we're feeling nervous. Maybe we overcomplicated things. Maybe we've set ourselves up because of works. If we're feeling nervous about that, about how much we believe, go to Jesus and ask. Go to God and ask. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus. And we thank you that it was your initiative, Lord, that brings us salvation. And it was your love. Lord, we pray that we can please you with our faith and not think so much about our faithfulness, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are good to us and that all things have come from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.